Father, we are, again, thankful that we're here on this beautiful, beautiful day you've given us. We're thankful for the cries of little children. It's just a reminder that uh, you bring life and you are bringing life into this church as other, uh, other moms are expecting. So that is something we rejoice over. Uh, Lord, thank you um, for your word. Lord, I, a lot of times I feel completely inadequate to deliver your word. And so I, I, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide me and direct me, that I would only say what you want me to say and that uh, you would bless the reading of your word. Lord, that this would uh, transform us, change us for your glory. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, brothers and sisters. Ephesians chapter one, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23. And so like what I did last week, I'd like to go ahead and read the whole thing. Kind of we're in the plane, getting a bird's eye view. Then we're going to land the plane and then take our time. So Ephesians chapter one, starting at verse 15. Again, we're going all the way to the end of the chapter. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of the Um, of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One theologian uh, described Ephesians as the gem on the, um, the crown of grace, a gem on the crown of grace. And while grace is definitely a big theme uh, in the letter to Ephesians, the, the main focus that Paul's getting at is the believer's identity in Christ. In fact, he uses that phrase in Christ along with its variations some 30 times in the letter alone. And um, he He brings it up a lot in his uh, other writings uh, and epistles. In in Colossians chapter 3, he describes it as your life is hidden in Christ, which I think that's a really neat way of describing it. Jesus, prior to his death and resurrection, he was talking to his disciples and saying, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I'm going to be in you and you're going to be in me which kind of go, okay, how does that work? How does that look? And this is an illustration that I've used uh, before, and I found, found this to be extremely helpful, and uh, hopefully you will find this helpful. If not, I'm still going to use it anyways. Nah. So anyways, I have this um, peanut butter pretzel container. Um, 
and smells like peanuts there. So no peanut allergies do not come near here. I have a microphone, okay? I'm going to place the microphone inside the peanut butter. So definitely have a peanut butter allergy. Do not use this microphone. Just realize that right now. Why did I do that? But anyways, too late, too what? Okay, if I ask you to focus in on the container, you can see the container, but you can't help but also notice the microphone, Correct. Now, if I ask you to focus in on the microphone, you could see the microphone, but you can't, all, you, you can't help but notice the container as well. That's what it means to be in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And similarly, when he looks at Jesus, he sees us. That's the significance. That's the amazing uh, reality of this relationship we have in Christ. We are in him, he is in us. We are in Christ. And, and, and when we come to our, our passage this morning, verse 15, Paul begins with this phrase, for this reason. It could be translated because of this. Other translations of the Bible actually say therefore. And what it's doing, what, what Paul's doing is he's looking back at what he just talked about. And, and it's actually... Uh, when we look back, it's actually the, this long passage of verses uh, 3 through 14. We looked at that last week. Remember, it's one giant sentence in the Greek, 202 words. Paul's just going one thing after another after another. And, and verse 3 really is the, the summary of the entire passage of verses 3 through 14. So if you go there real quick in Ephesians 1, chapter Uh, chapter one, uh, verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be glorified. Why? Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In, In verses one and two, we learn that if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Right? You don't have to be validated by the Vatican. You don't have to be validated by the Pope. You, just by being in Christ, you are now a saint. Similarly, if you are in Christ, you are also blessed. And he says, you are blessed with every, literally all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Paul is very specific. He's not focusing on the physical blessings. Does God bless us physically? Yeah. He blesses us with beautiful days. He blesses us with, with uh, jobs so that we can pay bills. He blesses us with amazing relationships. He blesses us with beautiful, you know, good food to eat. But it's the spiritual blessings that are the most significant because those spiritual blessings will continue on into eternity. And so that's what Paul's focusing in on. And what he's saying is that there is not one brother or sister in Christ who lacks in any spiritual blessing. You have it all. In fact, the song that we just sang, there is nothing more in heaven left to give. You are not lacking. You have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is a reality for you right now. And it's also something that's going, you're going to experience in the future. And he breaks it down to three, mentioning three blessings. Right? He says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And he lists three of them. Uh, number one, you have been chosen by God the Father. In verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, I have to address this because unfortunately that word chosen, along with like predestined and foreknowledge, has um, individuals have added some traditions onto that word to make it mean something it never was meant to mean. They, they, they take it as uh, referring to salvation. Like before God created everything, God, uh, you know, was looking at the, you know, 
mankind that had yet to be created, and he selected individuals who were going to be saved. And some would go so far as to say he selected individuals who were going to be saved, come to his church, and he selected those who were going to go to hell. That's what he did. He chose them, he predestined them. That's not what this word means. The word, the verb here just simply means to select or to pick out from. The adjective to be chosen means to be selected for a task or for a, a position. Here he says, um, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. It has nothing to do with the salvation. It has to do with the results, the implications of salvation. Basically, before God started this thing called creation, before he created time, space, and matter, he decided, he chose that those who would follow him, his church, would continually exist before him as holy and blameless. That's what it means. And those two words there, holy and blameless, have rich Old Testament roots. You think of holy as the priest. The priest would have to be you know, set apart, dedicated for the service of the Lord. Blameless refers to the, the offerings that they were to offer, that you know, the, the, they were acceptable to the Lord. That same language is now applied to us who are in Christ. That right now, because you are in Christ, you are holy and blameless. Guess what? You go to sleep, you're holy and blameless sleeping. Tomorrow, you're gonna wake up, holy and blameless, and that's going to continue on all the way into eternity. That's amazing truth right there, amen? So we've been chosen. Number two, we've also been redeemed by the Son. Verse seven, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. One theologian put this, uh, uh, described this as the great exchange. You know, Christ uh, took on our unrighteousness so that he can offer us righteousness. Christ uh, took on the wrath of God so that we could receive the blessing and grace of God. Uh, Christ took on our shame so that he can offer us forgiveness. Christ died so that we can have eternal life. It's just amazing, beautiful, beautiful truth. And then lastly, he closes off uh, this section uh, referring to the Holy Spirit, that we've received the Holy Spirit and the, and the Holy Spirit has sealed us, literally stamped us. We, we belong to God, we're protected by God, and also that seal the holy spirit is the deposit or the guarantee the assurance that we will receive an inheritance in the future this is amazing truth and so we, we talked about this again last week you know some christians will ask well is it possible for a christian to lose their salvation and that's the wrong question to ask the right question to ask is can god lose a christian because the truth is if you read about that with the power of the holy spirit there's no way in fact, Paul in, in, in Philippians says that God is at work both to will and to work for his good pleasure in you. So yeah, you, you'll never lose it. You are his and you're gonna stay his forever and ever. Now, I, after the service, I, I've never encountered more positive response from a service that I've ever, ever done. And I have to say, that's not because of the messenger. That's because of the message. It's the power of the message here. This is amazing truth. That if you are in Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, talking with some of you are like, oh my goodness, this is just amazing truth. It's a great reminder. It, it just lights a fire under you. It, it inspires you. You're, you're excited. You're ready to go out there and you know, glorify God with your life. And then Monday came, Right? Tuesday and then Wednesday and then just the pressures of life in general and the obligations of life came and, and all that and that once amazing truth starts getting overshadowed, right? 
I mean, if, if you guys were honest with yourselves, maybe some of you even forgot what we talked about last week because of life, because of everything that goes on. It reminds me of a, of a, of a story, and this is a fairly popular story. You might know it, but it's regarding William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst was a, a, an American businessman who lived many, many years ago, uh, very famous because he started a number of business ventures, earned his fame and his fortune really as being what they called a newspaper tycoon or a mogul, media mogul, whatever you call it at that time. Uh, and he had more money than he know, knew what to deal, do with it. Uh, he, he purchased some property, beautiful property in Northern California along the coast, and he built himself a castle. Has everyone been there? It's Hearst Castle. It, it is an amazing feat of architecture. I mean, it is literally a castle. And then behind it, he actually even built a zoo because he loved animals. So it's just huge property, amazing view. Uh, uh, just the structure is incredible. But if you've ever had the opportunity to actually walk in the house and be guided in the house, you would notice... a amazing items and furniture that you would expect to see in a museum behind protected glass. Because you see, William Randolph Hearst was an avid collector of antiques and uh, uh, artifacts, historical artifacts. He didn't want to just put it in a museum. He wanted it to decorate his whole house. And so that's what you see. You see all over the place. We were uh, in his, the dining room. It was just a massive room, probably bigger than this you know, room that we're in. And it was also his library, thousands of books. If you're a bookworm like I am, you're just kind of like, wow. And one of the the guides uh, took me to the side and says, you know, I want to point out something. And he pointed out these like four or five books. They're in the midst of all these thousands of books. He pointed out them, they were green. He says, these are autographed first editions of the work, the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe. It's like, What? It's just in the midst of all these books. It's like, yeah, there it is. He says, I don't think they've ever been opened. <laughs> it's just like, ah, oh! it's just amazing. Well, it, with, 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 with Hearst, enough was never enough. He just constantly had to buy things and have things. There was one particular item that he just needed. He had to, have, he didn't care what the price was. He didn't care what it would take to get it. He would do it. He wanted it. And he sent his, uh, his assistants to go search for it. He's like, I want this thing, go get it. And so the assistants go and I don't know how long it took them, but eventually they came back and um, they said, you know, good news, Mr. Hurst, we found the item you're looking for. He's like, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care what we need to do in order to get it. Let's get it. He's like, well, it's in your storage warehouse. Like, you already own it. And it's like the one thing he desired, the one thing he absolutely wanted, he forgot that he even owned it. Similarly, when it comes to amazing spiritual truth like this, what we read in verses 3 to 14, we receive it, we rejoice in it, but then life comes and somehow, for some reason, we take that amazing truth and we stick it in the storage warehouses of our minds, of our hearts. And it loses its punch, it loses its intensity, it loses significance, it, 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 we sometimes forget about it. And so what Paul says is he's, he's coming here, he's like, for this reason, in light of this amazing truth, he says, I, I don't cease thanking God because of you and, and, and praying for you. Now, what's interesting is uh, if you look at a number of uh, other letters from Paul, 
Paul usually, usually begins with a, a normal introduction, who's writing, um, uh, who he's writing to, and a general salutation, and then he would go into a prayer or some form of encouragement. In the book of Ephesians, he gives the introduction, salutation, and then he busts out in this huge, ginormous sentence about that because you are in Christ, you are blessed and blessing, blessing, blessed. It's like a fireworks display. Boom, boom, boom. And then he goes, I'm praying for you. And I think that's on purpose because again, we too often forget these amazing truths. And Paul's desire is that we wouldn't. He's, his desire is that the church in Ephesus would not put this amazing truth in the warehouse, storage warehouse of their life, that it would always be at the forefront. And so that's what we're gonna look at, his prayer to this church. And before he gets to that prayer, he first acknowledges the church's genuine faith in Christ. And we see that in the second half of, of verse 15. So he says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Faith and love. Faith is, is the Greek word pistis. It means to believe, to trust in. It's, it's one of those Greek words that's a little bit hard to nail down. It, uh, uh, but it's, 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 very, it's a deep kind of belief and a trust. It's, it's the idea of giving yourself over to whatever or whomever you're putting your belief and trust in. It's almost like this trust plus devotion. And then love is the Greek word agape. And that's the kind of love that Christ displayed when he died for us. Both faith and love, these are the marks of a genuine believer. You know, Paul says that uh, my salvation in, in Philippians is, is not based on following the law, following the rules. It's, it's based off of faith, trust, in, trusting in, in, in Christ. We don't earn our salvation. We don't deserve our salvation. Christ did everything for us. We just believe and trust him as our Lord and Savior. That, that's it. It's faith. But faith is not enough. I mean, you could, you could easily just say, oh, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Savior until you're blue in the face. But where's the action? What, what, what's the, what's uh, the evidence of this belief? And whereas here, it's love. Love. Jesus told his disciples, a commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. By our love for each other. I mean, it's not the programs. It's not the cars out parked out in the parking lot in front of a building that says Cascade Bible Church. It's our love for one another that determines that the world sees and goes, oh, you are followers of Jesus. First John actually goes so far to say, um, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then the love of the Lord is in you. If you don't love, then the love of the Lord's not in you. In other words, you're not actually saved. I mean, he doesn't mince words there. There's no footnotes that says, well, there's extenuating circumstances. No, if you don't love, you're not of God because God is love. And so here, Paul's, Paul must have been encouraged. He says, I've, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Notice he doesn't say, and for the fact that you like the saints, that you like the saints. We're, he, he, <laughs> we're not to like 
each other. We're to love one another. Sacrificial devotion. I mean, we all come into this room with all different backgrounds, different personalities, different ways of thinking, you know, our minds are wired differently. And sometimes we could rub each other the wrong way. We could do something, say something that you can go, oh, I don't like you. Well, I don't care. Do you love them? Do you love them? If you are truly a follower of Christ, you love the saints. And what is love? You go through the whole passage in Corinthians. It talks about love. What love is patient, love is kind. Love bears all things. Are you bearing with people? Are you being patient with others? Are you being impatient with them? Paul sees the genuineness of their faith. He says, oh, again, it must have really encouraged Paul. He's far away. He's in prison in Rome awaiting his trial, doesn't know what's going to happen. And he's hearing We don't know, maybe some messengers coming and saying, hey, listen, I need to tell you about the Christians in Ephesus. They really love Jesus and you could see it by their love for one another. And Paul's like, awesome. That's so great. So he acknowledges their genuine faith in in Christ. And then he he expresses in verse 16, his, his appreciation, which eventually leads him to prayer. So verse 16, he says, I do not cease I do not stop, refrain from giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. You think about how encouraging that must have been for the uh, church in Ephesus. I mean, some of them might have thought, oh, you know, Paul, he's, he's away and he's really busy and he's got a lot on his plate. He's in prison, waiting his trial. You know, it's, it's understandable that he can't be here with us, but they receive a letter and he says, hey, listen, I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. That must have been really encouraging. I remember for us, when we were going through a a pretty rough patch in in our early marriage, um, we would have people just text us or send us a letter, call us on the phone, says, hey, listen, I'm just letting you know, I'm thinking of you and I'm praying for you. Oh man, that was just, that meant the world to me. It's like, that was so encouraging. One of the things I absolutely hate, I absolutely hate, and I may have said this before, but I don't care because I absolutely hate this, is when people say, oh, I'm, I'm sending my, my good thoughts your way. Oh, I'm sending positive vibes and, and thoughts, good thoughts and vibes your way. I'm like, okay, good thoughts? Like, how is that supposed to help me? I don't even know what you're thinking. You know, that, do I have to buy this like good thoughts receiver and something that doesn't help me oh what about vibes how do you send your vibes you got this like butterfly net of some kind that catches the vibes and you just it's like i'm sorry your vibes smell like you just had mexican foods keep your vibes away from me that doesn't help it doesn't help me at all but if you tell me that you've gone before the throne of grace and you talk with the creator of the universe, the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the all-powerful, the God of love. And you said, oh, I I talked with him and I prayed for you. Well, then that's something right there. That's really encouraging. And on that note, in regards to encouragement, when, when you read the letters of Paul, Paul's really just pretty blunt you know, he doesn't, he's not very fluffy. He's just right to the point. And even though he's to the point, he, if you read his letters, he always brings up encouragement. 
He's always makes, it takes time to encourage the church, even if they're messing up. You go to 1 Corinthians, a letter that is really filled with correction and a bunch of rebuke. And yet Paul says, I thank God when I hear of his work in you and I'm praying for you. So encouragement. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. You know, we would do well to be encouragers. We would, be, we would do well to be encouragers. Now, I know for some of you who are not natural encouragers, that's going to be a little bit of work. Some of you, it's going to be a lot easier because you're just natural encouragers. But it would be well if we become a people of encouragement. Not to say that correction and rebuke is, is, is un, uncalled for. No, sometimes it is. But you got to understand, if, if you're, let's take an example, husband and wife. If you're constantly criticizing your spouse or correcting and rebuking them, and that's all you do, you're just draining. You know, it's, it's like a withdrawal from their emotional bank account. Eventually they're running on nothing and you're just beating them down. It's not, it's not t- building them up. Similarly, if you're a parent and all you do with your kid is just criticize them, correct them, rebuke them, you're going to crush them. But if you take time like Paul did and invest in encouragement, it's like you're making a deposit into that bank account. And the more, more you deposit into that bank account, when the time comes to have that serious conversation, to have that correction and that rebuke, it doesn't break them. In fact, it builds them up. Why? Because they got a whole bank account of encouragement from you. I mean, that's what you see Paul. It's like before he goes into uh, rebuking, correcting the church in Corinth, he says, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. I thank God for his work in your life. Here's the encouragement. Again, we would do well to be encouragers. So Paul expresses his, he acknowledges their, their genuine faith in Christ. He expresses his appreciation uh, for this church. He thanks God for them. And that leads him to prayer. And so we get to what the the content of his prayer is, verses 17 through 20. He says uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's it's the reason why I'm praying for you is so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the Father of majesty, the Father of splendor, uh, grammatically we could call this an attributive genitive, which means it describes the Father. We could even say uh, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, the glorious Father may give, may bestow upon you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul first begins by, by praying that their knowledge of God would grow. He uses the word wisdom. Wisdom is um, the application of knowledge and experience um, in a beneficial way that brings God glory. It's being the skillful application of knowledge and experience that is beneficial and glorifying to God. Uh, this is something we lack in our society today. We, we live in a society that praises intelligence, but it doesn't care for wisdom. <laughs> and case in point, you can listen to you know, an expert on 
television, who's got like more degrees past their name than Celsius and Fahrenheit combined. And you know, they're just way, really intelligent individuals, and yet they make foolish decisions. We would have to say, that's stupid. It's foolish. They don't have the wisdom. That wisdom comes from God. And, and, and Revelation, he uses, this is the idea of an unveiling. He says, a r- unveiling in the knowledge of him. The word knowledge is, is, a, is a compound word. It comes from gnosko. Gnosko is a, is a knowledge that is a well-acquainted knowledge. It's a knowledge that we know through experience or by experience. It's a difference from another Greek word, oida. Oida is, is referring to more of a head knowledge, more of a, a head understanding. This is a personal, exper- uh, uh, personally experienced kind of knowledge, but it's epigenosis, which again, someone's going, blah, 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 what does that mean? I don't really care. Epigenosis, basically what he's talking about, this is a full, complete, firm, strong knowledge of God. So Paul's prayer is that the church in Ephesus would grow more and more in their knowledge of God. And if you look in all other passages like Philippians, Colossians, this is something he prays all the time. This is God's desire. God's desire is for the church uh, to, to grow, to mature. And so Paul prays, hey, I pray that you grow in your knowledge and understanding of Christ. Now we have to understand that this, this, the ability to, to, to know God to have this wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God is only possible through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you look uh, in verse 18, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's an unfortunate uh, translation there. Uh, the, the, the word, uh, the, the verb may be enlightened is what we call a participle. It's a verb that needs to rest on the main verb, which in this case is give, may give you a spirit of wisdom. And it's also presented in the perfect tense, which what does that mean? It means this is something that has already happened. So another way of saying may be enlightened is you have been enlightened or having been enlightened. He uses that phrase, the eyes of your heart. This is the only time he actually uses this particular phrase. Your eyes is where, where, what you perceive things and how you understand things. The heart was the place of, of uh, your, your inner being. It was where you know, the seat of your emotions, your, your mind, your, your desires, your wills. And, and um, what Paul's saying is that, that you, the eyes of your heart has already been enlightened. And because of that, he prays that the knowledge of God, our knowledge of God would grow more and more, if that makes sense. So this is something that has already happened. And because of it, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can understand, we can grow in our knowledge of God more and more. In Isaiah 11, uh, verse 2, it's, it, it talks about the Messiah, that the, whole, the Spirit was going to rest on the Messiah, and it was a spirit of wisdom and of knowledge. Paul, Jesus says that that, you know, he attributes that to himself, like, I have received the spirit of wisdom and knowledge. That same Spirit now resides in us, working in us. It's a spirit of wisdom and knowledge. And, and, and so, again, Paul's prayer is that that knowledge of God would continue to grow and grow and grow. Because, again, the more we know about God, that changes everything. It directs how we live. It, it, it changes our priorities, what we value, 
what we, again, prioritize in our life. So he says, I, I pray that the knowledge of God would continue to grow. And then he goes on to pray that the knowledge of the spiritual blessings that we received by being in Christ would continually be at the forefront, would be continually uh, inc- be encouraging us. We see that in verses 18 through 19. And he, 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 he uh, brings up three uh, three areas here. The first one is uh, the hope of his calling. Verse 18, he says, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. The word calling is a klesis. It's, it means a, an invitation. It's, a, it's an authoritative summons. It's, it's um, you know, calling to a position, a place. Uh, it, you know, what, what Paul's doing here is he's, again, referring back to the blessings that he referred to uh, brought up in verses 3 to 14. He's like, you know, the, the, the blessings of, of being in, in Christ. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God chose you. The Son redeemed you. The Holy Spirit has sealed you and is assuring you of your inheritance. That is the hope of your calling. As being a follower of Christ, that is the hope of your calling. And when he uses the word hope, it's, it's not the way the, our world describes hope. You know, our, our world, if you, in fact, Webster's Dictionary defines hope as to want something to happen or be true. To want something to happen or be true. That's kind of a weak hope. The kind of hope that we have, the hope that the Bible describes is a confident expectation. It's a confident expectation. I am confident of this truth. It is done. It is a promise from God. It is good. It, it, it could take that to the bank. It is going to happen. It is a hope that not only affects our past, but it also affects our present and our future. When you go back, uh, God has chosen us that the church has chosen, that was a, you got a past action before the foundation of the earth. It's a present reality when we're in Christ, we are now before him as holy and blameless. And, and, and guess what? It's gonna affect our future because in the future, we're gonna continue to be holy and blameless. Same thing with our redemption in Christ. From the moment we, we, we received our salvation in Christ, something that Christ has done in the past we are now redeemed. Our sins are forgiven. And guess what? They're going to continue to be forgiven. And one day we're going to receive new bodies and we're going to be with Christ forever and ever. And then when we have all the Holy Spirit, again, from the moment we receive the Holy Spirit in our life, from believing, putting our trust in Christ, it's a present reality. The Holy Spirit's working in us and through us and, and guiding us and, and helping us to grow in our knowledge of God. And guess what? That the Holy Spirit's going to empower us all the way into the future. In fact, he's the guarantee of our inheritance in the future. That's our hope. That's our hope. That is the hope. I pray, Paul says, that you would know. He uses the word oida, and he puts it in the perfect tense. Again, that you would know, not only now, but from here on out, that you would know, fully, completely know, what is the hope of his calling. This is amazing truth. He doesn't want it to be put in some storage facility in our lives. He wants you to understand the hope of his calling. Amazing, amazing hope. And then next, he, he, he prays that we would recognize the value we are as God's inheritance. He continues on. Um, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, Paul makes it really clear. We are awaiting an inheritance. In Romans chapter eight, he says, we anxiously await our adoption. It's something that's in the future and oh, we can't wait for it. Hallelujah, new body with Christ in a place where there's no weeping or crying in, in Christ's kingdom. That's all stuff we are waiting for. 
And we're rejoicing in the fact that that's going to happen. But here Paul's saying, Christ is also waiting for something. And it's for his church. It's for his bride. Just as we are anxiously awaiting our inheritance, he's anxiously awaiting to gather his church once, uh, you know, officially grab all his entire church to be with him forever. And look what he says, what are the riches, the abundance of the glory of his inheritance? It could easily be translated his glorious inheritance in the saints. We're not just an inheritance, we're a glorious inheritance in the saints. Think of that. I mean, if you're a first century uh, in living in Christian, living in Ephesus, while Ephesus was considered the mother city of Asia, it was considered a city of opportunity. If you were a follower of Jesus, it really wasn't that great for you. In fact, you lived in a society that was continually devaluing you because of your belief in Christ. Does that sound familiar? It should, (laughs) because we live in a society that is continually devaluing us. The world does not see us as a valuable asset to their society or to their country. If anything, they see us as an annoying hindrance of progress. And so what does Paul say here? He wants us to know not only the, the hope of our, uh, the hope of his calling, he, doesn't, he wants us to know that. He also wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That you have value. The world may not value, value you, but Christ does. You're his, you're his bride. And he can't wait to have you all of us together with him. That's great. So he wants us to understand the hope of his calling, the value we have as his God's inheritance. And then third, verse 19, he wants us to understand the power available to the saints. He says, uh, what are the riches of his glory, uh, of, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? This, this word surpassing uh, literally, literally could be translated as casting far. Uh, and since it's Super Bowl Sunday, think of one of your favorite quarterbacks at the edge of the, the, the football field. And he chucks that ball all the way. I mean, he, all of his might. And this is an over-exaggeration here, okay, you guys? Just to prove a point. But he's just, he throws that ball and it doesn't just go all the way to the other side of the field. That would be pretty impressive. No, it goes past the bleachers, past the the parking lot, into the street in front of the Coliseum. That's kind of the idea of this idea of surpassing greatness, this surpassing beyond magnitude of God's power toward us who believe. This is the kind of power that Paul drew from when, when he was writing his letter to the Philippians, in, in Philippians chapter four, he says, you know, I've learned the secret of being content in any situation, whether I have a lot or whether I don't. I mean, remember, he's writing that letter to the Philippians in prison. He's writing this letter in Ephes- to the Ephesians in prison. Again, in those days, the guards who were, you were normally chained to were not responsible for caring for your uh, day-to-day uh, um, necessities. 
And so a lot of prisoners needed to rely on donations from family and friends. But living in a, you know, honor shame society, if you were arrested, that was considered extremely shameful. Knowing someone who was arrested was also equally shameful. So a lot of these prisoners went without. And so for Paul, uh, you know, there's people who provided for him, but there's times where he didn't have anything. He says, but it's okay. I've learned the secret to be content. He goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens me. We live in a society that's all about trust you. You know, you have an inner power. You know, you have an inner lion inside of you. You just need to open the cage and let her go. You need to believe in yourself, trust in yourself. I always tell my kids, no, I don't trust in me. You know, my, my strength only goes so far. And guess what? I get tired. But I have access through the power of the Holy Spirit to a power that is of surpassing greatness. Surpassing greatness. Paul reminds Timothy of this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And that was... This was a number of years in, after Ephesians, and it was, a, it was still a rough, rough ministry. And because Timothy was young, there was individuals who didn't really uh, either give him a lot of honor or really could take him very seriously. And so there was a lot of pressure going on. And Paul says, you know, Paul, uh, God did not give us a spirit of fear. The word could also be translated as timidity. Have you ever been afraid in such a way that it just stops you? Like you're just completely frozen I'm not talking about fear of just the boogeyman underneath your bed or anything like that. I'm talking about just fear of life. Like something's happening, something's going to, you're going to experience, and you're just petrified. I can't move. So God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power. He then goes on in, in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says that um, our, the weapons of our warfare, which again, kind of a, sneak peek, Ephesians chapter six, Paul's going to bring up the fact that we are, all of us uh, in Christ are part of this uh, spiritual battle that's constantly going on. But Paul says in his letter to second Corinthians chapter 10, that uh, the weapons of our warfare are not man-made, but they are divine power to destroy strongholds. I mean, you think of a stronghold, you're thinking of a pretty impressive structure, right? A structure that's basically saying nothing comes in, nothing goes out, and you ain't going to move this. And Paul's saying the weapons of our warfare are of divine power to destroy strongholds in your life. What's a stronghold in your life? Peter says that whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's a stronghold for them. And it could be a number of reasons. It could be lust. It could be coveting. It could be, you know, people's opinion of you. It could be your comfort, living a comfortable life. It could be whatever. It could be an attitude, anger, fear, selfishness. What is your stronghold in your life? And I mean, it it does feel like a stronghold, right? You just feel like, oh man, I just feel like I could just not get over this. Guess what? The weapons of our warfare, the divine power to destroy those strongholds. It's a surpassing power of God working in us and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. You can actually say no to your sin. No. You know, again, we talked about that today. In our modern language, we call, we use addiction. Biblical language is slavery. 
Well, if you are in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You can actually say no. Does that mean it'll be a little bit hard? It'll be it'll, you know, kind of a struggle? Yeah, but you can say no. And guess what? Actually do it. That's amazing. Again, it's not because, oh, you have an inner lion, like Katy Perry says, you're going to hear me roar. That's like an old song. I don't know why I keep on using that. But anyways, you know, it's just like, you, you, you know, oh, believe in yourself, trust in yourself. No, I trust in God. I trust in his power, his, the surpassing magnitude of his power that's readily available to us. These are the three things that Paul wants the people of Ephesus to know, and by extension, what God wants us to know, to completely know the hope of his calling, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, assured and sealed by the Spirit. He wants us to know the value of, of, of our, uh, our value as God's inheritance and the power readily available to us through the working of the Holy Spirit. And then, in the last few verses, in verses 20 to 23, he describes the magnitude of this power. He's like, okay, I just said, you know, the, the surpassing greatness of his power. I want to go ahead and, and, and show you what I mean by that. So he says, um, I'll just pick it back up at verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ, number one, when he raised him from the dead. Jesus died. Some people will say, oh no, he swooned. You know, he was so beaten. He lost a lot of blood that he, he gave the appearance that he died, but he really just passed out, kind of went into a mini coma. And then after a few days, he was like, oh, I recovered. Hey guys, what happened? What did I miss? You know, but that doesn't make any sense because, you know, when Jesus died, I mean, he was, his death was overseen by professional executioners. I mean, it's what they do. In fact, they even thrusted a spear into his side to make sure he was dead. And it, it said water and, and blood actually for, uh, poured out of there, which uh, some doctors would say that's because they pierced his heart sack and there was water and blood that get trapped in there and that poured out. He's, there's no way you're gonna survive after that. Not only that, when they take the body, they would wrap it up into upwards of 100 pounds of material and spices. So if your body was weak because of blood loss, do you think you could even survive with 100 pounds of linens and spices on top of you? No. It's like he was dead. Three days later, he rose to life. He's alive, but guess what? He's in a resurrected body that will never die. So it's, it's, it's way beyond even Lazarus because you know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, Lazarus got up and eventually he got old and he died. But Jesus was raised and he's never gonna die. That's pretty powerful. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, people would, um, would describe God's uh, power based off of creation. You know, God spoke things into exist. You know, spoke everything into existence, or or they would attribute it to uh, the works, the mighty works of of the Exodus. You know, when when God uh, showed His power through the ten plagues of Egypt and leading the people out. You know, splitting, parting the Red Sea, and all that, leading the people to dry land. All that was a way that they described the magnitude of God's power in the first century after Christ. God's power is now described 
in the, in the workings of raising Jesus from the dead. I mean, they said, this is power. This is power. Christ was raised from the dead. So that's number one. The second one is that Christ has been enthroned. He says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, the position of authority, not only that, sharing the authority of the one who's sitting on the, on the, on the throne, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is described as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he goes on to describe the supremacy of Christ. He says, he's seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Though those terms, rule, authority, power, dominion, name, those were all terms the, the people in Ephesus were very familiar with because those were the titles used to describe the gods and the deities that they feared. These rulers, these authorities, these powers, these dominions, these individuals, these, these spirit beings, these demons that they, 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 they were petrified, that they had to make sure that they were following all the rules, that they were going to the temple, that they were worshiping them and, and, and um, you know, so that the gods, these beings would be on their good side. We have to make sure they're on our good side because if they're not on our good side, then bad things are gonna happen. And it, it, it stands to reason that many of these Christians who had just come into, you know, new believers who prior to Christ were deeply rooted in that worldview may have, had, may have struggled. You know, yes, I have Christ, but what about these other gods and goddesses and these astral spirits and these terrestrial spirits? What about them? In fact, if you look at Acts uh, chapter 19, you see that the early church... Uh, um, these early believers in Ephesus still practiced magic. They still, they still thought they needed to harness the power of the spirit world until God displayed his power. And they were like, okay, we don't need it. We're going to burn all of our books. What Paul is saying here is that Christ is superior above all those deities, all those demonic spirits. You no longer have to be afraid of them. Why? Christ is above all rule. And he's not just above, he is far above. He is considerably superior to the, every ruler, authority, power, dominion. And every name that is named, that was another term that was used um, in, in, when practicing magic or folk mysticism. It was very important to name names, the na to know the name of different deities and different spirits because in invoking those names, that's how you were able to harness their power for protection. And, and what Paul, Paul's saying here is Christ is way more superior than that. Like he's way more powerful than all those things. That's how powerful Christ is. God's power raised Christ from the dead. And Paul says later that, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead resides in us. So that's even, whoo, hallelujah on that one. He's been enthroned. He's sitting enthroned. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is supreme. And then he brings up this idea of, of that, that, that Christ is, is also the head of the church. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. That, that, that phrase, under his feet, is an idiom to, to refer to complete control. Christ has complete control, dominance over everything. And gave him as head 
over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in, in all. Christ is the head, he's the top, he's the superior, he's the one in charge of his church. And just like our, our, our heads, you know, kind of guide and direct our bodies, so does Christ. And our heads, you know, help nourish and feed our bodies, so does Christ. Christ nourishes and feeds his church. But I want to focus in uh, on this one word here. Uh, it says the fullness of him uh, who fills all in all. That word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. That's another word that the people in Ephesus would have been very familiar with because it was the desire of everyone to experience the pleroma of the gods, to experience the fullness, the completeness of the spirit world. And so that's why they would worship all these different gods and goddesses and all that kind of thing. In, in that time, there would be false teachers coming around and telling these new believers, hey, listen, it's okay for you to believe in, in Jesus and follow him, but that's not enough. That's, you won't experience the pleroma of God if you just follow Jesus. You've got to also follow this God and you've got to access these spirit beings and, and these angels. You've got to access all that and then you'll experience the pleroma of God. Paul says in, in Colossians that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And actually that, that's kind of all the fullness. It's kind of redundant. It's almost like all the allness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, if you have Christ you have the pleroma of God because Christ is the pleroma of God. You don't need to go to access all these other spirit beings. You have everything you need right there. That same language now is now attributed to us, his church. We are now the pleroma of Christ. We are now the pleroma. Go, go with me to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. Oh, got to hurry up. Acts chapter one. Okay, so Acts, written by a guy named, who was his name? There we go, someone did it. Who did it? Yes. Gold stars and treasure in heaven. No, I'm just playing. Um, yes, Luke. Luke wrote uh, the gospel of Luke and this is his like part two of his account uh, of, of uh, regarding Jesus in the early church. Um, the start of the, the church. And he's writing this. He was commissioned by a guy named Theophilus to write this. And so in Acts chapter one, starting at verse one, Paul, uh, Luke says, the first account of Theophilus I composed, he's referring to the gospel of Luke, the first account of Theophilus I composed all about, uh, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What Luke is insinuating here is that this next account is all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Which is interesting because if you keep on reading through chapter one, Jesus goes up to heaven. He goes up to heaven and the angels are there and he's like, well, why are you looking up to heaven? Like you have your job, go do it. Jesus is coming back. So the idea is when you read the book of, of Acts and later on chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells all the believers what you see is now Christ is now, uh, the, um, the church through the power of the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Christ. We are now the pleroma of Christ. Christ isn't walking around bodily, right? I mean, you have a couple of people who say, yes, I am the Christ. And it's like, no, you just need a padded room. You know, Christ isn't, but, but the church is here. 
And the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We basically are the hands and feet of Christ in this world. We continue the ministry of Christ in this world. That should change the way you view church. Church is not just a get together where we sing a bunch of songs, hear some guys talk for about an hour and then go on our merry way. Church is so much more glorious and so much more meaningful than that. We continue the ministry of Jesus here. Why Jesus says you're the light of the world. You're the city set on a hill. You're a beacon of hope to this world. You're continuing my work that I started. You're doing it. That's amazing. You're thinking, are you kidding me? Me? Lord, you're using me? There, there's, um, this just come to my mind. It's uh, my, 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 my son, uh, Liam, uh, not kidding, Liam. My son, one of my sons, Patrick. <laughs> Which one are they? Who are you right there? No, uh, Patrick. Uh, he, he's my littlest guy. And uh, he uh, was showing me his pictures. You know, we, we put them on the, the, the refrigerator. And they're just scribbles. You know, they're just all this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, as a parent, we look at them, we go, oh, that's cute. You know, that's going on our, you know, we're, we want to keep it. That's just, you know, and you know, oh, what's this? And it's just squiggles. Oh, that's a spiky dinosaur eating somebody, you know, or whatever. And it's like, oh, again, it's cute. But if we were to go to an art exhibit and to see that same picture with like $5,000 to buy, we think, are you kidding me? That's garbage, right? That is ridiculous. And yet, because I'm his dad, I, I like it. I cherish it. I'm going to hang it on my, 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 my refrigerator. Similarly, I, that's how sometimes I feel. I don't know how you, probably you can all amen this, but some, that's sometimes how I feel. Particularly sometimes as a pastor, especially, I feel like I'm just, I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm, I'm trying to be faithful to Christ. And, and all I'm doing is just this squiggly drawing. I'm just doing this squiggly drawing and it's like, uh, I want it to be, and, and I'm saying, okay, God, this is for you. This is all I can do right now. It's just a squiggly mess. And God looks at it and he goes, I like it. I'm going to put that on my refrigerator. In fact, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to add stuff to it and I'm going to make it work beautifully. Yeah. We're the playroma of Christ. Christ is working in us and through us. He understands sometimes we squiggle, scribble, squiggle, not squiggle, squib, scribble. But he loves us. And he's working in us to grow us more and more into the image of his son. When uh, Caleb was, was uh, just a little guy uh, and Cammie was, I think, one years old, um, we were on our first family vacation and we went to go visit up uh, Brianna's parents in Idaho. And then we we're going to make our way through Nevada and go into Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, go visit Lake Tahoe through Nevada. And I don't know if you've ever taken that road. It's beautiful. There's one area where it turns around, you know, like you go around this corner and it's just, it looks like something out of a fantasy world. You see the mountains and then you see the beautiful Lake, Lake Tahoe, just, you know, shimmering. 
And we were driving and it was, I don't know what season it was. We called it kamikaze bugs season. All these bugs and butterflies were just flying and all over the windshield. And I was getting so frustrated because it's like, ah, they're all over. And I try to wipe them and then their guts would just spring over there and then smear, smear, smear. And I'm going, ah, and then there goes another one. There's more. And I'm getting all frustrated. And Brianna's like, you know, Brian, ah, wait, wait, hold on, Brian. I'm just, come on. You know, I'm losing fluid here and it's just bothering. Brian, I'm, I'm like, what? It's like, you're missing it. I'm like, what do you mean? And I was like, as I, she pointed my direction, look, past the guts, you know? And I looked and there's that view, this gorgeous view that I would have missed because I was carrying, I was pretending, paying too much attention on all these guts on my window. I was missing this amazing view. Paul is basically saying in his prayer, I don't want you church to miss this amazing truth. I don't want you to miss this amazing truth. The hope of, your, of, of his calling, you've been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed and assured by the Spirit. The value you have as God's glorious inheritance, the power that is readily available to you by the working of the power, by the working of the Holy Spirit in you and through you. Paul's like, I don't want you to miss this truth. As a pastor, I don't want you church to miss this truth. I don't want you to be like hers and I don't want you to move these truths to some storage warehouse and forget about them. These truths are important. These truths are too glorious to be put away, to be forgotten. These truths are identity-shaping, life-changing, transforming truths. And it's, it's, it was Paul's prayer that the church in Ephesus would not forget that. In the midst of a crazy world, that was getting worse, Paul didn't want the church to forget that. By extension, God doesn't want that, us to forget that. And so what I'd like to do, we're gonna sing a song. Um, it brings up the, the, the power of Christ. And, um, but uh, I'd like to also um, pray over you some scripture, if you would mind, if you could go ahead and stand up. It's found in Colossians. And uh, if you notice any similarities in this prayer, like, like what we just read in Ephesians, you're right because Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians around the same time. But yeah, the band can actually come on up. We'll, we'll go ahead and pray. So let's go ahead and pray this. I would like to pray this prayer over you. He says, uh, I pray, church, that you would be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Father, again, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this amazing truth. May we not be like William Randolph Hearst and place it in the warehouse of our, of our hearts, but may it constantly be at the forefront of our lives. May it, it, it permeate our lives. May, may we be guided and led by it. May it continue to give us encouragement as we move in the, the, the dark days ahead. 
I thank you again that you are a loving God and that you are a God who blesses us, Lord. The idea of a blessing is we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't work for it, we don't have to pay it back. You are a good father to your children. Thank you. Thank you for making us holy and blameless. Thank you for taking our little scribbles and applying it to your masterpiece. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.